Okay. Morning, everybody. The uh, the one Christmas thing that wasn't mentioned, and actually about which things have been very quiet this year, so I probably ought to just do a bit of market research, is of course our Christmas Day swim. Yes. Oh, yes. Well remembered. Not a rousing response. <laughs> is anybody planning to do the Christmas Day swim this year? Yes. One, two. Okay, we're there, we're on. It's on. Frank's from China after the service. The gateway tradition. I think this will be the eighth year we've done it or something. Christmas morning swim. Um, brilliant. Uh, we are finishing today our objection series. If you're here for the first time and you haven't been to any of these, on the term cards you can still get information about what we've been looking at. And if you wanted to listen, all the talks that we've done are available on the church website, so you can listen to those. And books which are recommended are available on the, on the little bookshelf in the corner by the window. And today, as we finish, we're looking at the subject of how can there be only one way to God, and we should have our little introductory video ready to play. Do you think you have the right path to God? To me, that's an arrogant claim. Who said that? There may well be a God. Just let me win this one. I want to live again. But it's not the guy in the Bible. Buddha with the powers of invisibility. Muhammad, the Muslim prophet with the powers of flame. Krishna, the Hindu deity. Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet. Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism. And Sea Man, with the ability to breathe underwater and link mentally with fish. How can there be only one way to God? Now, um, there, probably, there was a time when it might have been thought that the significance of religion in global affairs was declining steeply. Um, think back to when I was growing up and there were two dominant political cultural systems evident in the world. There was capitalism in the West, which was secular and materialistic. And uh, there was communism in much of the rest of the world, which was secular and actively hostile towards religion. And the idea that Christianity might speak to politics was completely rejected, really, in both of those systems. And in the world in which we live now, in the secular West, that would still very much be the case. And it's indisputable that in the Western world, organized religion, at least, is in, or seems to be, in terminal decline. And those of us who are Christians are used to being in a minority. So my whole experience of being a Christian as I've gone through life has been, I'm used to being, apart from in settings like this, where obviously we're all most of us, are, the Christians are in the majority. If you're, if you're not a Christian today, you're in the minority here. Uh, still very welcome amongst us. But I'm used as a Christian in most settings to being in a clear minority. Uh, yet predictions of the death of religion have proved very premature. And we can see evidence of that all around us. So in our own context, we can see it. We can see it in our own town. So across Ball and Bournemouth, there are a significant numbers of thriving churches. There are churches like this this morning across our town, which will be packed with people uh, giving praise to Jesus. Across this town, there'll be many people doing what I'm now doing, sitting, talk, opening the Bible, talking about Jesus. And that's happening all across this town. So we can see that uh, 
the church certainly is not dead. And actually, there's considerable church growth in some areas, even in the UK, especially in London. Uh, between 2005 and 2012, so those seven years, 300 churches closed in London, but over the same period, a thousand new ones were started. And uh, in London, particularly, church going is actually increasing. So there's the kind of death of religion has been prematurely pronounced on many occasions over the centuries. Of course, also less positively, far less positively, we've seen the rise of extremism. So that's been one of the key shifts in my lifetime. As I was growing up, the threat seemed to be communism and the Eastern Bloc. Uh, the Berlin Wall came down in 89. Everything began to change. And since then, uh, the rise of extremism has become the problem rather than the communist political system. And so we live in this world of very conflicted messages about religion, about its benefits and about its costs. This week I saw a, a post on a blog by somebody who works for a charity uh, helping the, the uh, homeless in London, and he's, the title of the blog post was, I'm agnostic, but I know if it wasn't for Christians, many more homeless people would die on the streets. And the post is about how he'd been out doing a, a, a count of homeless people on the streets and how many Christians are involved in that, and it was because of the, it's the activities of Christians that really keep those kind of outreach efforts alive. Um, but the general sentiment probably as well in our society is religion causes wars, that religion is a bad thing. And so it's unsurprising if there are very mixed sentiments towards those of us who have strong spiritual, strong religious convictions. And those of us who, like me, take our religion seriously are especially troubling in a world which is troubled about serious religion. And part of what troubles people about people like me is when people like me say, Jesus is the only way to God. That is especially troubling. And the kind of response we get is, well, if there really is a God, so let's take that as the first point, but let's assume there is a God. If there really is a God, how can there be only one way to God? And I think the reason why this question has particular relevance and power in our point of history and where we live, the culture we live in, is because exclusivity is a cultural taboo. To be exclusive, to draw tight lines around anything is not what we choose to do generally in our culture in 21st century Britain. And so as soon as someone like me makes an exclusive claim saying Jesus is the only way, that in the, one of the phrases of the day kind of puts us on the wrong side of history. Actually puts Jesus on the wrong side of history because Jesus made exclusive claims about himself. And, of course, what I believe is that Jesus isn't actually on the wrong side of history. History is all about Jesus. So let's see what Jesus says about this. And we're going to start at what is probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. Uh, it's page 625 in these Bibles. It'll come up on the screen, but you might want to have it before you as we go through this morning. This is Jesus speaking as recorded by John, and he says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's try and break down some of the things that 
which Jesus is saying in this famous passage. First thing, in a world of many beliefs, Jesus makes an exclusive claim about himself. Jesus claims in these verses that it is by belief in him that life is found. And that belief means a wholesale trusting of ourselves to him. And I think the fact that uh, belief in Jesus means a, a trusting, a giving of ourselves to him is, is probably the for many people, the starting point about why we have issues about this exclusive claim of Christ's, because uh, we don't like trusting ourselves to anything. We are a suspicious and cynical generation who like to keep our options open. And uh, many of us suffer from what's been termed options paralysis, that we have so many options and so many choices now in the world in which we live, that rather than helping us to live freely, actually it constrains us because we're so anxious that if we choose this particular option that something better might pass us by. That in a world where there's so many choices, it becomes increasingly hard to make any choice and it becomes increasingly hard to entrust ourselves to anyone or anything else. And um, there's a sociological observation about uh, my generation, which used to be called Generation X, used to be talked about a lot, and now the next generation, my kids' generation, the millennials, those who have been born later on, that we particularly, as generations, suffer from anxiety and insecurity when it comes to making decisions. And that comes from our consumer society that we've been raised to always expect to be able to choose what we want, and we're anxious about missing out on the best thing, the best bargain, the best model. And it comes from insecurity because we've been raised in a culture where divorce is so prevalent, and so many of our generation are used to growing up in a place where it's not clear who you can trust and who you can rely upon. And so we're nervous about making commitments to anything. And so when Jesus says, believe in me, trust me, that immediately sets off anxiety, insecurity triggers, all, all the kinds of things which make us nervous about committing and believing that there can be an exclusive truth. When we hear what Jesus says, our default position is to resist it because it jars so strongly with how we're wired. But Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. Actually, Jesus keeps making it worse. Later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes this, these things even clearer. John 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus makes very exclusive claims about himself. And these exclusive claims feel very offensive in our culture. We're pluralistic we're multicultural, multi-faith, we're tolerant 21st century people, and Jesus' first century exclusivity just feels so first century. And we're not first century, we're 21st century. But we need to see that actually Jesus made the claims he makes in, in a society which wasn't monocultural in its belief. Actually, it was a culture with many beliefs. Uh, we might think we're the first people to live in a pluralistic society, but that's certainly not the case. It's certainly not true of of the world in which Jesus lived. Yes, Jesus was a Jew and he was living in a Jewish society, but he was also in a culture which was surrounded by peoples from other people groups and beliefs and religions. There were the, the Canaanites who lived in the same physical territory as the Jewish people and they didn't worship uh, the God of the Jews, they worshiped 
Baal, of pagan gods. And then there were the Greeks and the Romans who were present as well. And they certainly didn't worship Yahweh, the God of the Jews. They worshipped the Pantheon, all the, all the gods of Greek and Roman mythology. And as for the Jews themselves, well, they already had Moses and they had the law of Moses. And so for Jesus to come and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, for them would have been highly offensive as well. Jesus was plenty offensive to plenty of people. So I don't think we should reject the claims of Christ simply because they are exclusive and exclusive truth claims don't feel culturally relevant to us. The exclusive truth claims that Jesus made would have jarred with his culture as well. And of course actually exclusive truth claims are much more common than we might think. It really isn't the case. We might say this about ourselves as a society that anyone is free to believe whatever they want but that's not really the case because any moral position that anybody takes tends towards an exclusive claim had an example of that this week in the debate about action in Syria uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Hillary Benn are making both making moral points with uh, very practical outcomes and their positions are mutually exclusive Jeremy Corbyn says we should not be bombing Syria. Hillary Benn says we should. And there's a clear line that is drawn. And whenever we make a moral judgment about anything, we're getting into the realms of exclusive truth claims. I believe this. I'm saying this. I believe this is true. A line is being drawn. And of course, if we say, as would be kind of, again, a cultural tagline for us, you can't make exclusive truth claims, that, of course, is itself an exclusive truth claim. So we always get caught in this. So I think it's actually much better, rather than worrying that the claims of Christ are exclusive, it's much better to deal with the claims he makes. What is it he's saying, and what is the truth of them? Are they true? So let's not let the myth that we're the first pluralistic society or our kind of pathology about trusting people to keep us from truth. In a world of many beliefs, Jesus makes an exclusive claim about himself, and so really we should worry less about the fact that it's an exclusive claim and more about whether or not it's true. Second thing we can say from what Jesus claims about himself is that Jesus' exclusive claim is born of love. It's born of love. A big part of the reason why we tend to reject and resist exclusive truth claims is they don't feel loving. That As soon as you say, I believe this to be true, and that draws a line, it feels like you're excluding somebody from love, that you're not embracing them, you're excluding them and our idea of love is to live and let live and so we're programmed to think that a claim to exclusivity is a limiting thing rather than a loving thing that as soon as you make an exclusive claim you're kind of withdrawing from other people rather than embracing other people and in our society with its emphasis upon tolerance and pluralism we don't want to do that only again that's not really consistently true either I've uh, quoted this before, but it's, it's an interesting survey. The National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles, which comes out every 10 years, one of the questions they ask on that survey is about people's view about adultery, uh, about uh, um, non-exclusivity non in marriage. First um, NATSL survey was done in, in 1990. The third one was done in 2010. And over those 20 years, there's a significant shift in, in the growth of people disapproving of uh, marital infidelity. So disapproval of non-exclusivity in marriage in men rose from 45 to 
and in women from 53 to 70% over the previous 20 years. So it's kind of a 20% rise in people saying, no, if you're married, you ought to be faithful and, and not have an affair with anyone else. And we know there are contexts where for love to be love, it needs to be exclusive. Yesterday I was taking the, the marriage of uh, Jared and Sophie Orty. Uh, Sophie, who was Sophie Schenkemeyer, who was a member of this church. And uh, of course, when you take a wedding, the whole thing is about ushering a couple into an exclusive relationship. That's promises which are made by the couple and something you celebrate. And that's what love is. We're celebrating love and it's exclusive. And we all know that for love to be really love, sometimes real love has to be exclusive. But the thing about the love of God is that God's love is infinitely expansive. And actually, real love is, is capable of infinite growth. So I think a lot of our contemporary problems with romance, and we do have a lot of problems with romance, is that we tend to make it much too narrow. There's much too much of a focus upon my relationship with this person. And we can make another person, another individual, our, our functional saviour. We think they're the person who's going to make our life complete, make us happy, bring us into, bring us into salvation, bring us into life. A functional saviour, this person. And of course the reality is that no human being can bear the weight of that. No one can bear the weight of that. Grace couldn't bear the weight of me thinking that she's my saviour. I couldn't bear the weight of, me th of her thinking that I'm her saviour. Actually, we're not enough to be one another's saviours. And when that kind of pressure is put on relationships, as it so often is, it's not surprising that so often relationships break up because what you find is this person can't be my saviour. And so we put far too much weight often upon a kind of a distorted view of what love is meant to be, of what exclusivity is meant to look like. And part of the thing about what we understand as Christians about marriage is that the love in a marriage which is exclusive between a man and a wife is also a love which is expansive. It's expanded not by bringing other people into the marriage, not by infidelity, but it's expanded because Christian marriage is meant to build community. And it does that often, hopefully, generally by the birth of children and family growing, but also by an invitation for others to be involved in community. That's why a, a wedding is a public event. It's a community event. It's inviting the couple into community and inviting the community into the relationship. It's, a, and it's an expansive love. And love isn't a limited good. One of the things you can worry about as a newly married couple, maybe thinking about your first child, or you have your first child and you feel such intense love for that child. As uh, I said last week, it was uh, my oldest daughter Georgie's birthday this week, 18th birthday time of much reflection and uh, some emotion in the house. Grace had a weepy moment. I probably had a weepy moment as well. <laughs> and, uh, and, and thinking when Georgina was born, it's kind of intent. I remember cutting her umbilical cord, holding her swaddled, I'm going to cry now, <sighs> uh, hold, hold, <laughs> holding her swaddled in a blanket and looking into her eyes and thinking, I know nothing about you. What are you going to be like? and a kind of intense love. And when you have your first child, you think, ah, sometimes I parents come worried about having a second child or a third child because I, how will I be able to love? And what you find, actually I love all four of my kids just as much. Love expands. That's what real love is. Love doesn't shrink. Love Hatred is constricting. Love is expansive. And it's this expansive love that makes the exclusive claim that God really does love the world. And there's no 
limits to how far that love can travel. But the only way into that love is through Jesus. Jesus is how God makes himself and his love known. Is that exclusive? Yes. Is it narrow? Never. And so we shouldn't let the exclusiveness of Christ's claim make us feel that it's a claim which lacks love. No, actually, love is where the exclusive claim originates. It's because God so loved the world with his son and his only son that we can come into an experience of God's love. Third thing to say from these verses is that Christ's exclusive claim is meant for life, not for condemnation. Jesus says that. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, we worry about exclusive truth claims because it feels like saying this is right and that is wrong, which is a condemning thing. It can feel like a condemning thing for us rather than a tolerant thing. And who are we to condemn others? But Jesus makes it plain that he came not to condemn, but to save. Now the question that then logically flows from that is, well, if if that's what Jesus came to do, if he came not to condemn, but to save, why doesn't God just save everyone, regardless of what they believe? And to understand that, we really need to understand something of the, the bigger story about what God is doing and has been doing been doing in the whole history of the human race. And that means starting in the book of Genesis, as we so often do, that what is it to be human? To be human is to be made in the image of God, that God made us to be like him, and God made us to know him. That's what it means to be made in the image of God, to be like him and to know him. And anything that keeps us from reflecting God, anything that keeps us from imaging God as he made us to do, keeps us from knowing him, keeps us from being in relationship with him. And that is a problem. To not be in relationship with God, to not know him is a problem because that's what we were made for. Made in his image to be in a relationship with him. And the story that the Bible tells us is that there is this relational rift sown between man and God because of human beings rebelling against, because of a lack of trust. Because human beings rejected the exclusive claim of God, that God had spoken and then doubts came into, into the man and woman's minds. Can we really trust God? Do we really believe him? Doubted that exclusive claim. And that established a relational rift between human beings and God. And ever since, people have tried to find salvation but on their own terms. And so we've worshipped gods who aren't God and we've sought functional saviors and all kinds of things. Other people and all sorts of things which can't possibly save us because the only way you can come to God is by God himself. And this is what Jesus has made possible for us. This is, this is the Christmas story, that God has made it possible for us to come to God by himself, by Jesus coming and making God known to us. Jesus living amongst us as a man, living amongst us as a human being, tasting human life, knowing what it's like, coming as a baby, that promise of hope and newness. God making it possible for us to know him as he wants to be known. Genesis tells the beginning of the story. book of Revelation at the end of the Bible tells the end of the story. Revelation 7, it says this, After this I looked, this is again the Apostle John 
speaking in a vision, seeing a vision, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In that vision that John had there, he sees a picture of what God had intended in Genesis 1, now realized at the end of the ages. And it's a picture of inclusivity. It's a picture of all the peoples of the earth, every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne of God, enjoying him in his presence, knowing him, being in relationship with him, the completion of what human beings are made for, to be made in the image of God and to be in relationship with God. What God had intended in Genesis 1, what human beings messed up, what God has enabled to be restored through the action of Jesus Christ, now complete and perfect. It's a picture of inclusivity, but it's made possible exclusively through Jesus Christ. So don't let anyone fool you that Christianity is exclusive. No, the way to God is exclusively through Christ, but that way is open to all. It's an exclusive road, but it's an inclusive offer. And then fourthly, we can see that Jesus' exclusive claim does mean condemnation for those who reject him. The human story begins and ends with what God does. And it all pivots around the saving work of Jesus Christ. And that does make things exclusive. The only way you can get to know God is by Jesus. Jesus makes that claim about himself. The only way to the Father is through me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light. The only way you're going to come to God, the only way you can know God, the only way you can know the Father is through me. It's a claim that Jesus makes, which makes things exclusive. You only get to God by Jesus, which means if you reject Jesus, you are rejecting God, which means you're condemned. Now, the question which of course, then flows from that is, well, what about those people who've never heard of Jesus? What about them? What about the people in centuries before Jesus was born? What about people in parts of the world where no one's yet gone and spoken about Jesus? What about them? And that's a really important question, but it's really not the relevant one. The really relevant question is, how will those of us who have heard of Jesus respond to him? That's the question, really, that Jesus raises. That's the primary question. The question about what about those who've never heard is the secondary question. It's a question that Jesus answers, at least in part, by his instructions to us, the church, to go and tell people about him. It's the mission of the church, to make him known. But the real question, the most relevant question, is how do we who have heard, how do we respond to what Jesus says? Will we step out of condemnation and into love, or will we try to find another way? our own way, that can only leave us condemned. This isn't, really isn't one that we can fix ourselves. The claim that Jesus makes is that he is the only way. That if you want to know God, if you want to come into that relationship with God, if you want to fulfill what you are made for, to know God, then you do that through Jesus. It is an exclusive claim, but one that is offered to everyone. Final thing I think it's worth saying about this then is that Christ's exclusive claim 
should keep, those of us who are Christians, should keep us humble and grateful. One of the dangers of laying hold of an exclusive claim is that it can lead to expressions of superiority. If you believe that you found the truth, it can lead to a sense of superiority. I know the truth can very quickly become, I'm better than you. It's a danger into which, sadly, many Christians have fallen. It's a danger into which supposedly Christian cultures have fallen. This sense of superiority. We have the truth, that means that we're better than those who don't. And that, of course, is a hideous distortion of actually what Jesus brings us into when he brings us into truth in himself. Because really the counterintuitive position of the Christian is this, that we see that salvation is not anything to do with our merit, but it's a gift from God. It's all about God's grace to us. If you believe in Jesus, it's not because you are superior in any way to anyone else, but it's simply that God, by his grace, has enabled you to respond to his grace. It's that somebody spoke to you about Jesus, and by the mercy of God, you believed. That doesn't make you better, it just makes makes you blessed. And so we need to be very careful, those of us as Christians, not to get into a position of thinking we're superior to other people because we hold this exclusive claim about truth. Now we hold on to the claim of Jesus that he is the way to God, but what that should do for us is make us humble and make us grateful. We need to crucify any kind of sense of superiority towards others. Instead, we need to see how good Jesus has been to us, that he has enabled us to understand, to see who he really is. This also explains why there are many people who are not followers of Jesus who are better than many people who are. It's not the best people who get picked. It's not always the nicest people, the kindest people, the most intelligent people who get picked to be followers of Jesus. But Jesus picks people like me and people like you. And there are people who haven't yet responded to Christ who, humanly speaking, are much nicer much more able, much more admirable than many of us in this room. I've got friends who don't know Jesus who in so many ways are superior to me in so many ways. Which shouldn't surprise us because us responding to God's grace isn't about actually how good a person you are, but it's about the goodness of Jesus Christ. And so seeing the exclusive claim of Christ should keep us humble, should keep us grateful. Jesus makes exclusive claims about himself. They're claims which are born of love. They're claims which are incredibly inclusive. They're claims which are incredibly good. We're going to watch a video of Radhika, who's part of us at this church in Gateway, talking about her spiritual journey and how she came to know and love Jesus Christ. Hi, I'm Radhika. Um, I was born in a Hindu family, but my dad was an atheist, so he never let us pray to the Hindu gods as he doesn't believe in all those things. So I was actually brought up in his face saying that there is no God at all. I was the last in the family and I was the unaccepted baby, so 
my mom tried to abort me and after she tried so many ways I survived and then I was born in this world and my childhood I went to schools uh, which were run by the nuns so most of my schoolings were done in Christian faith schools but the only thing is like we were not allowed to know about God because we are from a Hindu background we are not allowed to read about or know about God only the children's with um, Christian backgrounds were allowed to have their subject on Bible and other things so without knowing God I was studying in a Christian school and I grew up and as as it went on I met Emmanuel and we fell in love and he was born in a Christian family but he never spoke about God to me so we just continued and my parents they never liked uh, Emmanuel and his family's background as well being a Christian so they didn't accept our love and since then I was um, not allowed to go anywhere I was house arrested and kept in the house but I, I never thought that there's no way that I could get married to Emmanuel so I started to pray to Emmanuel's God ask like if he can help because I know that my Hindu gods would never help so I prayed to God and asked like please let us live together for almost four years and then one day he answered my prayers and we got married and after getting married I thought like okay he is the true God and I should follow him without knowing the actual reason for for his coming to the world and then slowly I started to come to know about Jesus and his purpose in the world and then I realized that he came for me and for my sins and my and for my debts so and then I realized okay this is the true God and this is what I have to um, carry on so I started believing in him and I took my baptism and started to get involved in God more and um, slowly after reading Bible I realized like from from the day you were formed in your mother's womb I will be looking after you and I came to realize that later on that okay since my mother uh, thought that I'm an unexpected baby she wanted to get rid of me but God kept an eye on me and from the day I formed he was protecting me and he led me to go and study in a Christian institutes and he was he was there for me always in all my troubles and whatever I went through in my family and till till now he is there for me and he will be there for me in future after accepting Jesus as my savior I was thinking about my family and I realized that I have lost them forever because they until now they disowned me but through him I have gained so many 
moms and dads, brothers and sisters. And without him, this can't happen. So he's great. Thank you. Should we stand together and pray?